This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the single simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back listening to Militantly Mixed. Main Hustle Media podcasts are recorded on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, Tongva, Hohokam, and Yucateco Maya people. And we wish to pay our respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Konnichi, what's up, cousins? Welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your sir auntie, Charmaine Fury, aka The Blazing Blurred, and this is episode 205, and I'm so excited to be back from mental health hiatus. This April mental health hiatus, I gave myself room to take a break. I allowed myself to broke, and I'm glad that I did. Every time I have one of these hiatuses, I end up filling it up with all this other busy work or other projects and things like that because I feel like I have to be busy all the time. And while over the last few years I've been working on that and I've been really great about advising other people to take rest, I don't think I ever really let myself go enough. And the closest I come to it is when I'm in a bout of major depression and I'm laying on the couch. But that's not restful during that time. You always need you always need rest after a bout of depression. So um, I'm, I'm just, I'm proud of myself. I'm saying it out loud. I'm proud of myself that I let myself take time to rest. I swam in the pool. I laid out in the sun. I took naps. I watched TV in bed a couple days. You know, like I, I took time to actually rest. I gave myself room to be quiet and thoughtful and evaluating some things and I gave myself room to release some things and while that is going to be a long process the particular things I guess (laughs) that I'm working on and releasing uh, the fact that I gave myself room to start that process and let go of some things was really important Um, I'm proud of myself for doing it so I just want to say that out loud I Charmaine am proud that I gave myself time to rest. But I'm excited to be back, and I have some wonderful guests lined up for you for this upcoming season of Militantly Mix. And I am actually switching to the season thing. In the previous five years of the show, it's just been a weekly show, and when I take a break, I take a break, and then when I come back, I come back. But I think going forward, it'll help me a little bit better in organizing in if I call the periods between the hiatuses seasons. So for this upcoming season, I have some wonderful guests, can't wait to share. There are people that are working in creative spaces and mixedness, people that are just being their mixed ass selves all the time. And I hope in hearing their stories or learning about their products or services or art or music or books um, that you find some benefit as well. So I'm looking forward to sharing with you what I have for this season of Militantly Mix. And I still have to do the math to figure out what season to call this, but I'll work that out by the time this episode airs, hopefully. <laughs> Where to begin? There's so many things. I don't want this to be too long, but I know I always tend to have a pretty long intro. As y'all know, I was on hiatus during the closing of the uh, Be Your Mix As Self anthology submissions, and that closed on April 15th. And I want to thank everybody who participated, whether you submitted something, shared the post, or wrote emails of encouragement, of which I did get um, about doing this. I had a few emails come through that talked about 
people being excited about the anthology, but also not being ready to write something for it. And that, like, I'm surprised uh, the effect that those emails had on me. I think I got about five of those or close to. And um, uh, the the reasons I was given was, you know, imposter syndrome is really heavy right now, or um, I'm still trying to figure out where I fit in my own identity, but I'm excited to be able to read what other people may have gone through because that might be helpful to me. And like with that in mind, not ready to write something this time, but thank you for creating the opportunity. And that was so encouraging to me because a lot of the things that I create for Militantly Mix are really born out of uh, personal lack, something I'm lacking. Um, I found myself in a period of very little mixedness and I was like, how do I find other mixed people to connect with? So I created a podcast. Um, different events that I've done through the show or something like that, different activities have all been because there's been something I've been missing that I've wanted to do or connect with people on. And so I've created it. The anthology was no different. Um, I wanted to have multiple platforms of mixedness that people can refer back to if they needed to, or if they wanted to, or if they just wanted to enjoy things that mixed people created. And so the Be Your Mix SF anthology this will be the first one, 2023, uh, something I hope to do every year going forward and give all of us the opportunity to share our stories about our own perspectives um, in one place that a lot of people can enjoy if they want. And I'm really, really excited. So thank you again to everybody who submitted. If you shared a post, if you told a friend <laughs> or if you sent me an email, the shared post actually really worked because um, I actually received messages from people who said I, they hadn't even heard of the show before, but they're going to start listening. Uh, listenership did increase during the month. It usually dips a certain amount, but I could see that it was pretty steady during the time that I was on hiatus and not releasing new episodes. Um, and some of the people who submitted had not listened to the show previously and started after. So it was just benefits all around. And I just want to say thank you to everybody who participated. Uh, where we're sitting now is we are in the reading and review period. So Teresa and I are both reading and reviewing the submissions. And we're both in our feels about what we've been reading so far. But that's all I'm going to say. I know sometimes I talk too much. I'm not going to say anything else. We're in our feelings. Um, and so as we continue to work our way through that process, we are also setting up with a publisher. And we're going to go the self-publishing route, a print-on-demand route. With that in mind, there are some costs that are associated with setting that up. Once that is set up, it makes it a lot easier for the books to be accessible. Um, so I am doing a little bit of a fundraiser on, uh, I have a PayPal button for it set up specifically to capture the funds for production. So you can go to the link in the show notes or the link in the link tree on the Instagram or militantlymixed.com and click on the Be Your Mix SF Anthology tab and there will be a button there so that you can donate specifically to the Be Your Mix SF Anthology production costs if you would like to help us with that. Um, as of right now, I think we have about $77 in there, plus I have some funds pulled aside from submission fees, uh, but the rest of it we are looking to fundraise to get this ball rolling so that hopefully we can release this during the summer. <sighs> I'm so excited about this. I really am so excited about getting this book together. I really, really... <sighs> yeah, I'm just happy. I'm 
I'm happy that this is happening. I'll, I'll say that and then I'll shut up because I know I talk too much sometimes. Um, let's get into today's guest. Let's just do it. We're back. It's the next season. Let's do it. My guest today is Maris Lidica. Uh, he and I have been circling each other in mixed spaces for years now. We are Facebook friends. We know a lot of the same people. We have participated in a lot of the same events um, through Multiracial Americans of Southern California, Mask, uh, Loving Day, Midwest Mix Conference, I think even too. So, oh, so we've known each other without really getting to know each other for years. So this was actually the first time we got to sit down and talk one-on-one, -on -one, and it was really great. There's so much overlap between us. We're both, well, I would say I'm a former filmmaker, but he's a filmmaker. Uh, he's created some pieces about interracial relationships and our mixedness. He's working on a documentary right now called The Blended Future Project, which is about mixedness and interracial relationships. Uh, he's got a film starring and written, I believe, by a mixed-race woman called Gabriella that's in film festivals right now and he's also a creator consultant helping BIPOC and mixed people specifically to create their brands or their products by utilizing the wealth of knowledge he's created over the last 20 years rather than having to piece it together yourself you can actually use him as a consultant um, to do your brand creation that you'd like uh, so I'm going to put links in the show notes to the MarisLitica.com website, the Blended Future Project site, the upcoming screenings of his film Gabriella at, at Philly Film Festival and Pasadena Film Festival. Uh, so you can get a chance to, after you listen to the episode and you want to find out more, I'm going to put all that stuff in the show notes for you. Um, but yeah, it was a really great conversation. I'm, I'm actually disappointed that I didn't reach out to him earlier um, because we've been so connected for so many years. But without further ado, please join me in welcoming our latest cousin, the Militantly Mixed Family, Maris Lidica. Very first guest, Maris Lidica from the Blender Project. Welcome, Maris, to Militantly Mixed. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Why don't you introduce yourself to everybody and let's get into it. My name is Maris Lidica. I am a filmmaker and creator consultant. I am the founder of the Blender Future Project, which is out here to try and give more representation to mixed people in the media. Well, let me, uh, I guess, let me first, you know, kind of talk about my background. I'm mixed Black and Latvian. My father's side came from Latvia, uh, escaped the Russians during the, right after the Second World War, ironically. Mm. Same kind of thing is happening again in Ukraine. Um, so I'm actually hearing my grandmother's words about how the Russians are terrible all over again, which is the mm. way she learned English, which was by talking about how terrible the Russians were. And then... <laughs> True story. I got the letter. I was like, Grandma. <laughs> and then on my my mom's side, uh, descended and ancestors of slavery. I think we originally came from Nigeria, landed in New Orleans. My aunt was doing a bunch of research before she passed away, and she found a bunch of stuff. We were like teachers and librarians and doctors and all kinds of stuff after uh, Reconstruction. That's awesome. And my parents both grew up in Chicago. My mom was from the West Side. My 
father grew up in the suburbs and they met at a burglar alarm company of all places. They were like answering <laughs> phones because a friend of the mutual friend of theirs like got them both jobs and that's how they met. And that's how, that's how I came to be. So it was your father a uh, second generation then? Uh, yeah, first? he first was generation? born in Germany as a baby. Okay. But then because they fled from Latvia to Germany and then they got resettled in Kentucky and then they were like, this is Kentucky. <laughs> where else can we go? Yeah. And they went to Illinois and, and that's kind of where it happened. So he actually didn't get naturalized until he was like 18, 19, something like oh, okay. that. And he actually, his, the friend who got them the job is from an island not too far away from where you live right now. Mm. And they both got became citizens at the same time. They both like swore the oath and everything on the same day. Oh, nice. That's, that's kind of nice to have like, a friend to go through something like that with. Still curious about whether or not I'm going to make that leap where, wherever I end up. But um, but that's cool. So you're you grew up. So you grew up in Chicago then? I grew up in uh, well, I grew up in Oak Park, Illinois, which is like 30 minutes west of Chicago. Mm. Um but I went to school in Chicago uh, for like the first nine years. Then I ended up moving to Copenhagen because my parents got divorced. And my mom was like, fuck the U.S. I'm out of here. <laughs> she somehow she ended up in Holland first and then she ended up in Denmark. And then she called me and was like, you want to come live over here? And I was like, well, I'm not doing nothing. I'm 12. <laughs> I'm 12. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> why not? And then I stayed there till I was 18 and decided that I wanted to become a filmmaker and uh, unfortunately, in order to qualify for a film school in Denmark, you have to make a movie. But the program first, in my, first you have okay. to make a movie, then apply. Some colleges do that here too. They want to like see your work. Yeah, something. Yeah. But the program for you to make a movie had been canceled the year before I was eligible for it when I was huh. in high school. So I was like, well, I can either stay here and just hang out and try to figure out how to make that happen, or I can go back to the U.S. So I went back to the U.S., enrolled in Columbia College and started on the long, winding, sometimes fulfilling, sometimes very frustrating career of working in the entertainment industry. Which is why I am now a stay-at-home podcaster instead of in the <laughs> film industry, because I also went to film school and uh, my path ended me somehow in unscripted. And no, no, thank you. Yeah. yeah. No, thank you. Um, that's cool. Uh, do you speak Dutch or did you Danish. go to a Danish? Oh, you speak Danish? Danish. Did you? I went. I went to a Danish school for the first two years, um, which you know was good for learning the language real fast. Uh, which I still like know a lot of it. Like there's mm -hmm. a lot of things where I'll like watch things and I'll understand the words. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I can do it with like Swedish and Norwegian because it's kind of the same, but mm. not really. Um, but then uh, it's kind of the. Danish school system is kind of, it's broken up kind of weird. You go to nine years of basically grade school, mm -hmm. and then you go to three years of high school. They call it gymnasium. So I actually, mm -hmm. I went to American high school. I was a freshman. Then I left to go to Denmark. Because I didn't speak the language, they put me back in the eighth grade. So I went to ninth grade again. And then I was like, this is enough Danish for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to go to an international school where they speak English. So I went to an IB program where they spoke English and that's where I finished out my, wow. uh, my high school. So I have like a number of friends who work in international schools and it always, I've always been curious about like the process. If you still get any kind of cultural exposure to the place that you're at, 
and with you being a mixed person with also like an parental immigrant story and then you also become a foreigner somewhere like you got a lot of stuff going yeah. on in your mix. like it's not just your mix it's also like where you've lived and everything like that do you feel and like you picked up any of that culture i i did um well here's kind of the big culture shock for me was you know you know growing up in the u.s being mixed everybody asks what are you mm-hmm. that's the question they want to know like i have four to five racial categories that I know that you could possibly fit in. So just tell me which one you are. And then yeah. you have to kind of explain like, okay, like that's not exactly how that more works. Complicated, yeah. More complicated than that. But when I went to Denmark and people asked me like where I'm from, I, my brain immediately went to, okay, what are you? I would say, you know, my mom is black. My dad's white. He's from Latvia. And they would go, I don't know what that means. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yes. I'm experiencing that right now too. Yeah. They're like, where are you from? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, are you from Africa? Are you from the United States? Now said the United States. And then everybody would get like really excited. I was like, wait, so you mean, and I'm like 13, probably yeah. on 13. So my brain is like, so you mean the thing that I grew up thinking was like the baseline of my identity wasn't like, I'm actually an American in some yeah. places. So that kind of like messed with me for a little bit. Yeah. But then eventually I became, I was like, oh yeah, I'm an American. Like that's, my culture those are my cultural references and then i kind of adopted some of the danish thinking as well did that hurt like so i go my whole life being a mixed person with um you know two foreign grandmothers or whatever very heavily influenced by both of their cultures never really feeling like american and even my like film school documentary was called american foreigner because i was trying to work process through like what is my Americanness? And the first time I left the country, I went to to France, and everybody kept at you know assuming I was American, or they would say or Canadian, and I'd be like, no, I guess American. But I'm like standing next to my Japanese grandma, and I'm just like, but also Japanese, and and they're like, she's Japanese, you know, like I <laughs> like I remember having a conversation where I was with my my Spanish uncle, my Japanese grandmother, and my mixed white and Japanese aunt. And everybody's like, okay, you two are Americans. He's Spanish and she's Japanese. And it messed with me so much. Like, I, I just felt like it was almost painful to admit the American. Yeah. It, it is, I think, it is when you first get there, at least for me, it was like, mm. I'm American, but like America's done all this terrible shit, including to me, so I don't like it. But mm-hmm. then there was this other thing of like, but if I say I'm American, I get treated like way better yes. than everybody so else. Weird. <laughs> because Denmark is uh, Denmark is not a utopia. I know we like to say that it's utopia because it's, you know, it's got a really good social welfare system. However, mm-hmm. there is rampant xenophobia. Mm-hmm. To give you an example, there are Irishmen who get deported because they are not Danish enough. So in Denmark, it's all about, you'll never be fully Danish. You just won't. Even if you were born there, you just won't. So it's just a matter of, we have certain tiers of cultures. Some we like, some we don't. Which one do you fall into? And if you say you're American, then it's like, well, that's interesting. I like that because, you know, all the movies and TV that I watch are Mm. from America. So I have like a reference. I'm a little curious if you guys like shoot each other all the time and if you guys yeah. just eat like pizza and hamburgers all day. Yeah. But 
I can I can jive with that. Like I can get down with the fact that that you're American. Wow. So we beat out the Irish. Yes. In Denmark. Okay. At least now, like at the moment, it was better back then when I left. I left in the year 1998, Mm -hmm. and then it's kind of like gotten worse a little bit, like the racism and the xenophobia. Mm -hmm. I've talked to friends of mine, like yeah, it's it's gotten like way worse. Yeah, I remember my first um, exposure to how black people were treated in Scandinavia was on um, some some documentary I saw when I was like in high school or something, and the guy was born and raised there. His mother and father were born and raised there. So they were multi-generational. And I forget what, I think they were in Sweden actually, but you know, Scandinavia in general, I guess uh, probably experiences very similar things. Um, And, and him constantly having to like validate his, his thing. I was like, Oh, so we, we, we can't go anywhere. Basically it's the way I was feeling as as like a mixed black person. Like we can't go anywhere. And then finding out later on about the Christmas um character oh yeah oh yeah that they have (laughs) so that's they did have the grace enough not to bring that out when i was around like i never went to christmas celebrations they didn't they like put that away excellent (laughs) (laughs) i have a british grandmother and uh the the big fun racist thing that uh the the brits like to do is is the gollywogs they're like a raggedy ann doll that I've talked about it on the show too many times because I'm traumatized by these damn dolls. So they look like a regular hand doll, but black with the big overdrawn red mouth thing or whatever. And my grandma had them. My Nana had them around the house and stuff like that. She also really enjoyed collecting like Jim Crow era memorabilia and like her kitchen was de- decorated like that and stuff. And that was her way of connecting to her creamy babies that she created, which was completely, ugh. you know, like we kept Interesting. Like, yeah. So we you know, do it. I get to be about like 10, 11, 12. And I'm like, Nan, you know, this is racist and none of us like this. And they're like, no, this is your culture. This is me celebrating your culture. It's like, yeah, but this is not <laughs> like that. No. And there's this, there's two things. There's the gollywogs and the Aunt Jemima style uh, cookie jar it was like a, oh, yeah. a black lady with the red headband and the red thing and stuff like that. And that fucking cookie jar, I swear that like she haunts me. <laughs> every now and then she'll pop up in my head i'm just like that wasn't my own family um and then going to england you also see that same like gollywog style character um they still sell them on the streets they're on candy you know it's like all over the place um there's a version of that here in mexico too i'm starting to see in little places which is i don't i don't know how black mexicans feel so i'm like i need to investigate the way they feel about it before I get all up in arms, but it definitely, when I see it, I'm just like, Oh, okay. It's right there. It's just painted on the side of the wall. Okay. <laughs> let's go. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. It, I, it is kind of tough for us to, to reconcile. I think the being an American in America versus being an American when we travel as, as Brown people and mixed people. So here I'm experiencing very similar things where, you know, everybody's talks to me like I'm American. And then, um, I feel compelled to say, you know, yo soy negra y japonesa. <laughs> and they're like, no. no uh, yeah. Like, and then one, one person just, he did, he scratched his nose and told me to give him the chismosa. And so like, it's a way of being like, Oh, tell me the gossip about why, why are you te- like, first, why are you even telling me? Uh, but then also <laughs> like, what's going on? Uh, and it was my Spanish class. And so we were using it as a way for me to learn 
more Spanish and stuff. So he was asking me questions and I, I explained like, you know, my grandfather and my grandmother and maternal and paternal and stuff like that. And he was like, interesting. Um, and then basically was like, but you'll say yo soy Americano. <laughs> I was like, okay, great. Okay, I get you. Like that's so, it. That's, it's kind of, they're like that. It's like, that's cool. Yeah. But you're an American. But you're an American, right? And so there's a different feeling of like being in America and me saying I'm black and Japanese and, you know, British or whatever. And someone will say like, yeah, but like pick one and make it easy. You know, whatever it is they say. I know I'm more ambiguous in my presentation. And so it's harder for people to just tell me to pick black or pick Japanese or whatever. Um, usually it's Dominican that everybody wants me to pick, which I'm not. So there's that that's what I'm used to. That's the discomfort I'm used to. The discomfort I'm I'm not used to yet here is cute, but you're an American, you know, like yeah. thanks for the extra information I don't need and will never use to inter interact with you in any way, shape or form. You're an American. So I got to deal with the discomfort of that too. What's your, if you remember, what was your coming back to the States experience as a person that be, I like to say became American when you left the country? Yeah, I, uh, I think of myself that way too. I didn't become an American until I left the country. And to give a little bit of backstory, um, I got introduced to racism when I was in kindergarten because mm -hmm. I had a teacher who would, she would just make me stay after class and sit on the floor for like no reason. And I never mm. understood why. And then I guess she would tell my mom that she thought that I had some kind of like learning disability and I had to go to like the special ed education mm. class and if anybody is from that area in like the 80s, special education meant that your educational opportunities were essentially dead. You got yeah. tagged with disability and that would go on your record and any like type of colleges that you want to get into, you were screwed. So then, you know, my mom had grown, grown up on the West Side. She kind of knew what racism was, but she figured I moved to the suburbs. I have a white husband. Like they're going to treat me a little bit better. And then she yeah. realized like, oh, it's the same. So it was right. like, okay, son, who's five, I'm going to teach you what uh, racism is. There are some people who aren't going to like you because of the color of your skin, and they're going to treat you this way. And I think she told me that I like looked at my dad and I was like, why would you do that? And he was like, I didn't do anything. Don't look at me. <laughs> You're the spokesman, though. You're the one I know. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, no, it's like not all of them. Like, your dad's fine, like, <laughs> but some people will. So yeah. she had, she started like getting really involved and, you know, she found like a mixed group that met up in Oak Park, Illinois. There was like, I don't know, three other families. Um, one of which their son shot my very first short film when I went back to oh, college. That's cool. <laughs> uh, but it kind of came this thing where I had to like find images yeah. just so I could, and actually the only one that I could really find when I was a kid was He-Man of all characters. So I was like, he's got blonde hair, he's got tan skin, mm -hmm. he's mixed. I know it. I see. I love this nugget search that we go on as, and I talk about this too, like in my pop culture show as well of just like, you know, representation, we weren't going to get the idea. Like there wasn't going to be a black American Latvian nope. character. You know, you weren't going to get that. I wasn't going to get a black Japanese British American character, you know? So for me, it was Jubilee and storm Jubilee being a Chinese American transracial adoptee to white people and storm just being dope i don't know um you know and so like i was she's just white like, hair she must, yeah she's got white stomach. hair she's got an accent she's brown skinned you know uh there was something going on and so i was like if i could just combine these two 
then I could be that, you know, she's Chinese, she's Chinese, not Japanese, uh, Jubilee, but like, I get it. Her parents aren't the same color as her. My parents aren't the same color as me. It works. You know, these were the ways that I found the nuggets to find my representation. And, you know, I was also a military kid. So I I knew a lot of mixed people. Plus my whole family was mixed. Both sides of my family were mixed. I'm multi-generational. So both parents are biracial. And, and so it, I had a very mixed life. I just didn't understand why my TV didn't match yeah. all the people that I knew, you know? Um, no, I so think that's another problem people are still facing is like, I mean, it's better sort of mm-hmm. now, but still it's like, how come what I see in my world does not match what I see on television? Right. Because and there's never just- a friend group in my experience that was all white and I was the brown or... Yeah you know, there was one brown and one black or something like that. It was never, I've never seen that dynamic in my life, but I've seen it on TV a whole bunch. Yeah. You know. And to fast forward. um, So yeah, I became, I went from a kid to being another. Mm -hmm. Then I went, I moved abroad and became an American. Mm -hmm. And then I had to move back. And then I kind of had to reconcile with like, okay, I'm kind of both like I'm an American, but I'm also an other. So how do you like marry those two? Right. Uh, and that's kind of the struggle that's been, you know, through the work that I've tried to try to create because on the surface, most people, especially in the Midwest, there's really like three options. There's like white, black, Mexican. Yeah. That's it. So it's like, well, you're not Mexican. So you must be black. So you should be making black films. Right. And by black films, I mean films about like poverty, struggle, gangs, uh, and trauma, drugs, yeah. gangs, drugs, all that stuff. That was like, you know, this is the era of like when Spike Lee started to come up, and we had John Singleton. Mm-hmm. So those and those were the kind of movies that they were actually financing. So it was like, do that. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't relate to that. <laughs> I've never been shot at. Yeah, I've never like dealt drugs or like had to I, I don't know what this is and I assume even the black people that were in your life also weren't experiencing those things so you didn't no, even I mean, have them as a reference point well my mom's side of the family is large like mm. very large so some of them did but a lot of them I mean it's like any family you have those that you know fall through the cracks and get caught up in the system but then you have those that don't they just they just get jobs and have families like one of my uncle's uh, he was he was in the military for years. I mean, my mom visited him in Germany and all kinds of other places. Uh, another uncle, like he bought a bunch of different houses in Oklahoma. Uh, another one, I think, uh, I think he worked on a golf range for a long mm-hmm. time. But you know, again, these are like references. Like even if I was to reference their family upbringing, it's not going to be what Hollywood expects. Like they right. didn't get shot at. Maybe yeah. they got like chased by a bully once, but but that's it. So yeah. it was hard for me to kind of figure out, okay, where is the spot that I fit in? How do I make a story that's like true to me, but also in a way that will gain traction and you know get my career on on the right path? Because that's kind of the thing that you're taught is you have to make the right thing that somebody will notice you, and then. You know, you'll essentially win the lottery. They'll be like, I've got a right. bunch of money. Right. Because at that time, our, our like independent guys were Quentin and Kevin Smith. And like, these were yep. the people that made 
some weird thing that everybody attached to. And then that became a genre of some sort that you could work within. Um, But there wasn't like a mixed equivalent to that, which is also like my motivation too. I wanted to be like the mixed Francis Ford Coppola was my big thing. Like tell a, tell a family culture story through, you know, film, but instead of Italian mafia, it was going to be, you know, black Japanese and British people, <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, but yeah, that now, but back then it was like, well, if you're not basically, if you're not a white guy, like here's the slots right. that we have for you, and if you don't fit any of those slots, then good luck. Yeah, essentially, that's like that's even why I didn't get nearly the amount of production time um, that I should have had, having had a film degree. Like I graduated the film degree, I touched a camera one time in my program. Because they kept saying, oh, there's not enough cameras to go around. And I'm like, okay. But like Chad has gotten the camera five times and he's got four <laughs> films in, in festivals right now. I have one, you know, like, give me, give me give the me time Chad. Chad, Chad don't need it. So <laughs> that's my go-to name. <laughs> that's my <laughs> film blank lane name. So yeah, it was a, it was a tough time to like, you, you were so inspired at that. I, I think we're kind of contemporary in that age. Like we were so inspired for this opportunity. Like you could be an independent filmmaker. You could tell stories that weren't mainstream stories, but even them, even there, the gatekeeping was strong. And like you said, if, if, if you're not going to tell a black story that is hood, which I could have told because I, I'm black hood. That's how I grew up. But does a black hood story make sense coming out of this body, out of this face, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, that was tough. I think that was kind of what sent me down the trajectory that ended up just taking any job I can get, which got me pigeonholed in, in unscripted. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and I kind of did the, the same thing. I mean, luckily, I went to Columbia College in Chicago. And they did let us touch lots of cameras. Like all the classes I took, we were always kind of like hands-on learning things. When it came to getting out of school, they were not helpful at all. It was like, how do I get started? And they were like, here's a list of production companies. Go call them. I was like, that's not what I paid all this money to go to school for. Right. Because they did used to tell you they had all this like assistance to try to get you in. Yeah. That's how they sold us on paying that film school bill. Yeah. For sure never got but then you kind of get you like you you just like take a bunch of jobs especially i stayed in chicago so it was and the market this was before like chicago fire and all the different Mm. chicago shows so it was like okay there's like 20 jobs uh and there's like 100 people who want them so we need somebody well the chads all step forward (laughs) (laughs) a lot of that but there was like all the okay all the chads are booked We've got one spot is like a sound mixer. Do you know how to do sound? And you just say yes. And then you call your buddy who knows how to do sound and say, how do I do sound? How do I, do how do I figure this out? <laughs> that, yeah, that's a hardcore pretty much it. I ended up going from, at this time I was living not in LA anymore, but uh, Northern California. And so, and then I bounced to Austin, Texas. And I ended up working at a film festival because, you know, it was like, I couldn't get any of the film jobs for the same kind of reasons, small market. And if you weren't like you had two camps, you were either a Rodriguez camp or you were with the film festival that I was at camp and they they didn't like each other. So if you worked on one, you were making a decision and you didn't know you were making that decision because you just moved to Austin and you took the first (laughs) film job that came up. So yeah, that ended up being another different level of disconnect of, of, and yeah, 
yeah, it was, it was it was not an easy time to try to enter. I think now that people can make things on their own and with limited equipment and it still come out really amazing. Yeah. I think it, it's a better time for people like us to come out and start sharing our stories, uh, which is what we wanted. I'm glad, but also it would have been nice to be able to have that mixed Francis Ford Coppola storyline. Would have been nice when we were, you know. Yeah fresh on the market to be like right. oh there's a there's a there's a room there's room for us right so that kind of brings me into into curiosity of, of what maybe because of that what what bridged your gap from i'm sitting there actively trying to do this through other people's sources you know other people's resources and things like that versus creating what you the kind of work that you do now and what led you to the blended future project so to the last i left Chicago to move out to Los Angeles after the big crash in 2008. I was mm -hmm. like, I lost my job. I had gotten like a full-time job for two years. If anybody has Sprint phones like back in 2007 <laughs> and you saw all the like music news on it, I shot all of that. Hmm. But then they lost a client, lost all the jobs. I was like, screw it. I'm not going through another winter, shoveling out my car, struggling to like find camera assistant work. I'm moving out to Los Angeles. Yeah. And then when I got there, I realized that like there's when you go from like a smaller market to a bigger market, there is like a level of competence and expectation that you are suddenly faced with. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, good enough is no longer like good anymore. Right. And also I have to figure out what it is that I want to do because once you pick a lane, that's it. In LA that is, you get stuck in the yeah. lane. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, after a lot of years of like trying to muddle around, I was like, okay, the only job I could get was cleaning houses. Like there was no work. I didn't, hadn't picked a lane yet. So I was like trying to clean houses for money. Uh, and one day I like inhaled too many cleaning chemicals oh my gosh. and I had to like sit on the bed and, and get my, the wind back. And I was thinking like, I've never really done the thing that I wanted to do. So why don't I just try? So I just tried. I was like, I'm going to go out. I'm going to try to make a movie. I don't have a lot of money, but Let's just give it a shot. Uh, so I did that. I made a film called Sprout, which was about a Guatemalan girl trying to grow food to feed her family. Mm. And it got into a good amount of festivals. And I just started networking from there, trying to make other shorts, just trying to get that portfolio going. But around like 2016, when we know what happened during the election, I was like, all right. And it was, it was almost, I kept seeing this like Tony Morrison quote that said, this is the time when artists go to work. So I kind of had like mm, a sit down with myself and I was, I was like, okay, you've made all this work to try and get discovered. It hasn't worked. So why don't you do something for somebody else? Uh, and I had a friend of mine who was, who's I've known from Chicago for like 20 years. And he was like, look, you are mixed. There is no representation for you. Mm-hmm. So why don't you just go be the representation? Go help somebody. Like, you know how to do all this stuff. Just go do it. Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, fine. I'll give it a shot. So we started kind of figuring out like what the strategy was. And I figured, okay, you know, maybe I could make a documentary. And then I started making that documentary and I, and I realized like, okay, by the time I finish this, everything will have changed. Like there's no way for me to make a documentary and have it like stay current. Like some things will, but some things won't. And it'll take forever. And the thing that I, and I want to do something now. Right. So I was like, all right, let me just write. Like I grew up 
when I was a kid, I wanted to be an author. Let me just go back to that. It's really easy. I had to make portfolio websites for myself anyway. I'll just design a website, start writing things, putting it up there, sharing it all around. And that's how I started just connecting with other mixed people and realizing like, oh, there's like a supportive community out there that didn't exist, that I didn't know exist. Right. So there's like an actual, not only audience for my work, but like the people that I can connect with and learn what's happening, that we can have like a coexisting relationship. So it's like, all right, how can I expand that further and further? And that's where I started the Blended Future Project. So I was like, well, there is no representation coming. So how can I not only make it, but also teach other people how to do the same thing without having to go through 20 years of hardship. And that's really how you make that impact that you wanted to have in the first place. Right. Because that period of time, and I think 2016 to 2018, it was it was still a desert out there of mixing. You couldn't go on social media and find a whole bunch of mixed groups or a whole bunch of mixed um, platforms and anything like that. You might find that the occasional thing. Uh, for me in that time, I was finding... If I was finding groups, they were very pro light skin and mixed baby groups. <laughs> I've seen those. You've seen those? And I've seen I was those. I was like, yikes, if this is my community out here, I can't like I can't I can't be down with this kind of colorism. And I don't I like it's already hard enough to get the mixed baby thing from like random white women who'd be like, Oh, mixed babies make the prettiest babies, and then literally see mixed people say it. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I was just like, Oh, yikes, I I don't I need to find different people. Um, so the same type of thing I think was driving me towards um militantly mixed, uh, of talking about like our existence, I think I think was probably one of the most radical things that I could have done at the time was just talk about us existing and yeah. um you know it still took a couple of years to kind of get something going and and shape what this ended up being but i'm so glad that so many of us were in that space and i you know maybe it was triggered by asterisk 45 <laughs> I, I don't know but that time period seemed to mobilize a lot of us i think or maybe it's just the climate in general maybe during that time to get us going so that's so that's amazing what i and I, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of it, but during that Loving Day thing, I remember you had shared a short film or something that you were working on around the time. And I think it was an interracial couple. Yeah, it was a short film called Breakaway. I made it right before Breakaway. I started, um, right before I like actually codified the Blended Future Project. I made a okay. short film called Breakaway. It was about an interracial couple on their first date. And, you know, they kind of like got into a bunch of stuff. It was all about, you know, perception and how the way that we're brought up kind of changes the way that we see a similar situation. Mm -hmm. And then from that, when I was doing like, we had to raise money. So I was like doing interviews with the cast and the crew and my associate producer and her now husband, interracial couple. She's like a redhead from New Jersey He's, he's undocumented from Mexico. So I just, you know, sat down, we talked about the movie and I was like, well, you know, it's about interracial couples. Did any of you like have any qualms or like reservations about it? And uh, the redhead was like, her name is Shannon. Shannon was like, nah, like I've dated all kinds of people. It's not really a problem for me. My family doesn't, doesn't care. We're not this kind of people. Mm-hmm. And then I asked uh, Luis is his name. He was like, yeah, I had a big problem. <laughs> <I was laughs> yeah. like, 
It's like, I didn't know if I could date a white woman because I didn't know if she'd be able to talk to my mother who only speaks Spanish. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's interesting. Let's talk more about that. Uh, and that's where the idea for the documentary came from. Trailer piece that's on your website talks about that part of their relationship too, a little bit. Of yep, yep. And I'm, as I'm making, I figured, you know, there's got to be more people who are like this. Let me just go like talk to them, put a camera in front of their face and see what happens. And then, like I said, as I'm going through it, I'm like, this is going to take a long time mm -hmm. for me to make. So let me just simplify uh, and kind of take it from there. But the short itself actually did better than I thought it was going to do because I finished on February of 2020. Mm -hmm. And if we all remember. Right in the happened, nick of time. <laughs> my timing was impeccable. Right. So I kind of had to like sit on it for a couple of years. And then when things started opening up, start submitting it. And it got into some festivals. And then it ended up being considered for uh, an Oscar. We didn't get to the nomination stage, but we got the, to the consideration stage, which for me That's was amazing. like icing on the cake. Right. Yeah. This was the dream. Like this was what I was picturing too when I was entering, um, deciding to go to film school versus going, you know, down a communications path or whatever it was that my family wanted me to do, computer sciences or something. And I, I'd still a part of like the future mission. It's something that I, I dream of wanting to do eventually. And then I discovered the podcasting thing and I, I just shifted um, with the idea of creating an archive of our existence in some way through conversation and, and stuff. But the, the documentary aspect I think is important because it's important for people to see our faces, see how yeah. different we all look and how we are influenced the, to, to like see how, we exist within the ways that we identify versus the way we look and like how our relationships are complicated. I mean, I was a person I always thought I would end up with um, a black person because that's how I grew up. I grew up around black folks and uh, I ended up with a half middle Eastern half white guy that grew up in with the white side of his family. And he happened to hang out with a lot of black kids still to this day, 23 years later, I'm like, I have no idea how this happened. I don't know how this happened. And we have that challenge sometimes because we're, st we're still an interracial couple. Like we, there's things that happen that there's times when I'm like, oh, do I still stick this out because we have these fundamental things that are different. So I think something like that is very important. I'm, I'm excited about, from the trailer that I, that I had seen, I'm, I'm excited about seeing how that develops over how long you take it. And it seems, I mean, it seems like it could be endless, honestly. There's, uh, it led to, Another short that actually is in making festivals right now. A friend of mine, the one who I made Sprout with, like that very first short film, uh, she's mixed with Guatemalan and indigenous. Mm. And December of 2021, she got a grant through Netflix to make a short. So we made that last year. We screened it at the LA Latino Film Festival in june and then we recut it now it's kind of making it. it's in atlanta right now and that one we have a lot of high hopes for and we're just kind of it's just kind of continuing to grow i'm kind of getting now getting back to those documentaries mm -hmm. instead of making a, a huge giant one that talks about every single mixed issue i'm gonna try and i'm gonna focus on just smaller stories mm -hmm. just to kind of make that archive but do it uh, in a documentary style so there's like a visual to go along with it. I love that. Or do you think your your 
more passionate on the documentary side now than the narrative side? I kind of go in between both worlds. Um, I started off just wanting to do narrative, mm -hmm. uh, mostly because I didn't think I had what it took to like do documentary. Because like you gotta like interview a bunch of strangers, and I'm not good with that. Yeah, we have until, a lot of parallels. <laughs> <laughs> until you know you're struck. Until you know you get to that point where it's like I need a job, and somebody's like, "Can you make a documentary?" And like, sure, sure. Okay, here's a camera. Go talk to that guy. I can like, also right. ride a horse. I can do martial arts. What else do you what, need? What, what, Give me the soundboard. I got need? it. How, how much you paying? How much you paying? <laughs> Um, and now kind of like working in that world and especially I've I did a lot, I've done a lot of editing like that's mm -hmm. kind of was my bread and butter for a while I've edited a bunch of different YouTube channels like Tia Maori's YouTube channel I edited mm -hmm. like almost all of it including like the multiracial episode Jeannie mm -hmm. Mai is another one so um, I found that I like I like making narrative better I like editing documentary better because when sense. you're editing documentary, there's a little bit, there's more creativity on you as the editor because it's kind of like you have to just find the story a lot. They just yeah. give you a bunch of footage and say, there's a story here somewhere. Mm -hmm. That's your job. Go find it. Yeah, because you can start out thinking you're going to tell one story with the doc and then someone says something that sends you down a path yeah. and... And yep. that's, that's it. Yeah. I think, um, and maybe it's our age too, like in the beginning, same thing. I was, I wanted to do narrative. I wanted, I wanted to figure out who was going to be the mixed, the popular mixed actor that always got cast and thing. you know, like I wanted to be a part of that whole thing. Um, and now having done militantly mixed for almost five years, I, I just want to hear people talk. I just want people yep. to talk about what their experiences is because when I started the show, I thought mixedness looked a very specific way, you know, especially if we were a black mix in some way, shape or form, you know, like yeah. I thought it looked a certain way. I thought we all, you know, I, I was a member of the monolith until I realized the monolith didn't exist. And, and as I got to talking to more mixed folks and realizing how different it could be, whether you had a black mother or a black father, whether you uh, had a, a foreign parent or a grandparent like I did, uh, whether you're multi-generational, like all kinds of things were at play. And for the most part, I was in a unique position in that I grew up around mixed people and almost everybody I talked to had never known another mixed person unless they had a sibling. Yeah. Um, and and I, I just, I felt like it was so, I feel like it's so important for us to continue to share those stories so that people just know like we're, we're a huge population. Yeah. And I started to discover I had more overlap in a lot of ways, I had more overlap with fellow mixed people than I necessarily had with people from my same groups. You know, I, I don't relate very well to Japanese people, despite having a Japanese cult, a home culture. I do relate better to black folks, but I relate better to black folks who grew up in the hood because that's the kind of black folks I grew up around. You know, different things like that. Um, it's fine. But when I find a mixed person who says, oh, I just wish someone didn't touch my hair today. Or I wish someone didn't ask where I'm from today. Or I wish someone just believed me when I said I'm black and Japanese and not Dominican today. You know, like these types of things that that we end up saying. Um, it, it, it's been such a relief to have that community connection um, for, for commiseration purposes, yes. But sometimes you have those happy mixed moments and being able to capture that with somebody too is yep. like I didn't expect to feel the way that I felt doing the kind of work. That. And it's kind of one of those things where you have, you kind of outline for yourself, like my life needs to look like this. And then yes. you try and like force it in there 
and then you just get, get to a point where you're like, well, I can't make it happen this way. Let me just try something else. Try this. See yeah. what happens. And then it ends up being like that rewarding thing that may or may not get you back to the place that you wanted to be originally. Yeah. Um, I got to a point like after I hit like a hundred interviews, I started thinking, oh, is it possible that I might be the person who's spoken to more mixed people than anybody? And then that became a weird like focus of like, let me just collect all the mixed people I could possibly collect. <laughs> and I have no idea, like compared to other documentarians or people that are doing work, you know, maybe, maybe not. But in my head, that's the thing. I'm, I'm the person that gets to talk to mixed people. And so that that's the thing that I, I get to do. And I pull something from everybody. I've created friendships out of this. And, and even some business partnerships in certain aspects and things like that too. And I just feel like it, I didn't know, I, I didn't know what the path, what the path was doing. You know, like yeah. I didn't know there's like all these little hiccups and things like not working out exactly. Like you said, the way you pictured your life, um, bringing you this, like, it's sometimes super painful, but sometimes it's so joyful and exciting. And I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't change having fallen in to this direction at all um because there, there's a lot of reward there with uh there so the blended future project is kind of a bunch of things you you have your filmmaking and aspect of it but you also assist other i want to say mixed folks but it also seems like other bipoc folks are um, yeah uh, so i mean essentially what i figured out is that you know obviously through it i can create my perspective through it mm -hmm. through a bunch of different ways you know films documentaries written things i could do that um but if you really want to have an impact the way that you do is raise people up so i'm trying to create more mixed representation where i'm working with creators to make their stuff figure out how to make their stuff give them guidance so that way we can kind of be that that beacon of change that we want to be because one person could tell a story and it can make a little bit of an impact or you can get a bunch of different people telling all their stories in a way that really like resonates and connects. And that's how you make an even greater impact. And that's mm -hmm. essentially what it is. I, I love that there's so many of us out here doing things that, that are, could technically benefit a whole bunch of people, but that with the specific lens of us in mind, the for us, by us, about us, like that's my whole, that's my whole thing that I get excited about. So I'm, I'm happy that you found the path to do that, to support the community and be such a huge presence across so many, like, I, I know that I see your name pop up in things that I'm looking at or doing. And then also we've been connected on a couple of different, like we've been present in a couple of different events and stuff like that. So I just get, I don't know. I just get so excited when I see that, that like, I wasn't <laughs> turn it back to me. I wasn't weird. You know, like I, I didn't do this weird thing where just like, let's just focus on mixed folks, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Like there's other ones like us out there of doing this stuff. So I, I say that to say that I, I'm grateful for the work that you do for us as a community um, and for even finding the way that it helped you probably too, in the way that you identify and the way that you participate in, in all the cultures that you're connected to in some way, shape or form. Uh, before we get out of here though, I like to ask all of my guests, what do you love most about being mixed? I love the fact that I have grown up having two completely different perspectives on life, two different cultures, two different ways of relating to the world. And I get to kind of like pick and choose uh, which one works for me. Mm -hmm. And I get to, and I think it really helped me like see people more as people. Mm -hmm. um, 
like I obviously it's kind of like you can hold two thoughts in your head at the same time. Like I know when I approach somebody who's white, like societal standards, they are a white person, depending on their upbringing, they're going to have certain things, but I'm also looking out for those individual like Mm -hmm. quirks and personality things that separate them as an individual. So I see you, Karen. Yeah. But I also see you, Karen. Yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. Do you happen, I guess not, not knowing how Americanized your father may have been. Do you have a favorite hybrid food that kind of blends multiple of the cultural influences that you've had into one dish or a fantasy version of that? If you don't have one, my grandmother used to make, well, my dad pretty much was born in the U and raised in the U S like he was born in Germany, but he was a baby. So like from the time he was conscious, he's an American. American. Only thing different is passport. But, uh, my grandmother's side, she would make uh, these like breaded dough things with like ham inside. And I wish in my in my hybrid version of that is if they would fry it. <laughs> if they would take that, <laughs> put the flour on it, some seasoning, dip it in some oil, fry that up, and then eat it. Hell yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the Latvian name for it is. Somebody who's laughing out there could probably tell me, but right. that's what I would do. That's kind of like this, it's been an accidental accidental thing because I kind of accidentally asked it of a person once because they were talking about food and I was like, wait, what is my hybrid food? So I started to kind of ask people about their favorite hybrid foods. And I think there's a future cookbook in this (laughs) where people like mixed folks submit their hybrid uh, culture foods. The militantly mixed cookbook. Cookbook, yeah. I mean, I can't cook, but I I do like to eat and I want to eat my way around the world. So I, I think there's something there. There's definitely something. And had some of the best food that I've ever had. See, I still haven't been to Japan yet, but um, I did grow up with a Japanese grandmother who wanted to be a chef, and so I got to. So you probably got a. a I got some good ass food growing up, and it's funny too because the snobbery that that creates when you go (laughs) to a restaurant. (laughs) I'm just like, yeah, it's fine. It's not my grandma's, but it's. It was the same way when I came. I went. I went to Tokyo twice. Once intentionally, once completely by accident because I got a job nice. uh, two months afterwards. And then you come back and you're like, well, the sushi's good. It's fine. But it's not. It's fine, yeah. I guess. It's, not Amer- it's too American for me. Well, one of the ways that I've kind of blown people's minds a little bit, and maybe not as much in LA but or San Francisco, um, but in a lot of other places, is that most Japanese restaurants in the United States were run by Koreans because... American didn't have Americans didn't yet have a palate for Korean food. And so that's how these like weird roles and all this other kind of stuff started to develop is that people were finding a way to make Japanese food palatable for Americans. And um, and so like it's it's always been hard to eat at Japanese restaurants because the sauces aren't always right compared to what we had at home or the fact that there are sauces on some things that shouldn't have sauces or whatever. Or people using chopsticks to pick up sushi and stuff like that. Like different things that just in my head, they're just the home things. And so when I see it, I'm just like, oh my God, these little culture <laughs> vultures and stuff. It's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm completely semi a culture vulture because I only have a home Japanese culture. Like my Japanese culture doesn't relate to other Japanese that I've met and things like that. So that's funny. Why don't you tell everybody how to find you, how to find the Blended Future Project, and if you could also mention the at the film festival dates as well, how people can see that. So you could follow me on my uh, 
personal socials at Maris Lidica, M-A-R-I-S-L-I-D-A-K-A, or also at Blended Future Project for my company page. I post a lot of creator instructional advice and also how to be a mixed creator. So you get a lot of information from that. If you want to know more about uh, me and working with me, you can go to blendedfutureproject.com. That's our website. There's a place where you can just book a meeting to chat with me for about an hour. We can figure out what are you doing and how it is that I can help. And my latest uh, film that I produced, Gabriella, is at the Philadelphia Film Festival at the beginning of May and also at the Pasadena Film Festival on May the 8th at 4 o'clock, I think is our time. That's an in-person yeah. one? Okay. Uh, they both should also be uh, available virtually as well. Okay, cool. I love that film festivals are starting to do that too Yeah, because people need to access if they can't go somewhere. Yeah. Thank you again for joining me and being my first guest back uh, since I got to Mexico and came back from hiatus. I, I'm glad that while we have circled each other for many years, we're finally connected directly and in any way, shape or form that I can support sending folks towards blended future or, or whatever, please always feel free to reach out to me because I, I want to support all the cousins. I appreciate it. You were actually, when I was doing my initial like research into like the mixed community, you were like the first podcast that came up. Uh, so I listened to like a bunch of episodes. I was like, yes, <laughs> there is a way. There's a way. Let's make, let's make this happen. Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantly mixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantly mixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.